Welcome to Collier's Talks, a podcast series featuring the latest trends, insights, research, and developments in commercial real estate in Canada and beyond. Welcome to our latest episode of Collier's Talks. I'm Adam Jacobs, and I'm the head of research for Collier's Canada. I always like to focus on the fundamentals driving commercial real estate, demographics, the macro environment, and the global economy. So I'm very happy to be joined by someone from RBC Economics. I'm joined by Claire Fahn. She joined RBC in 2019 as an economist, and she focuses on the macroeconomic outlook for Canada, for North America, and she's responsible for projecting a number of these key indicators we all focus on, like GDP and inflation. Uh, she has a number of publications, including the Inflation Watch series and analysis of the labor market and macro trends. Claire, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Okay. I want to ask about a couple of your your publications recently. You put out your weekly preview yesterday. Uh, opening line, Canada's economic growth is showing more signs of losing steam. Uh, can just can you elaborate? Where Where's the weakness? Is, is it a region? Is it a sector? Is it all the way across the board? Yeah, that's a great question. So the preview or the weekly preview that we did was mostly focusing on the GDP numbers coming out this Friday. And that, in a way, really sets sort of the context for where we expect expect the Bank of Canada to be heading to um, in their basically rate announcement in a week. Um, so in the broader sort of macro backdrop, just for context, um, we are seeing more signs of softening in the economy and that's starting from labor markets. You know, we're seeing um, unemployment rate actually increasing by as much as a half a percent over a three-month period. So that was basically from April to July. Um, we rarely see that amount of increase in the unemployment rate, let's say, without the economy hitting a recession um, in previous cycles. And outside of their GDP growth for June actually looks set to contract by 0.2%. And um, what's more important here is really the fact that, you know, the decline is pretty broad based across sectors. So we saw manufacturing activities, wholesale sales, retail sales. So all of these things started to de decline simultaneously in June. So I think that's really, you know, more of a concerning trend, more so that, you know, we're seeing one specific sector showing some weaknesses. It's like a very broad base um, sort of slowdown that we're starting to see. Um, mind you, is only one month worth of data. It's only for June. But still, it puts the end of Q2 into sort of a weaker sort of um, position as to where uh, we're heading into in Q3 as well. Um, so the key question here is really, you know, is that sort of weakening momentum or is that softening uh, expected to be extended into the third quarter, and what can we expect from there forward? Okay, that's wonderful. Lot to chew on there: rates, job market, consumer spending. Uh, so, so many questions. Uh, and let me ask one more. You you touched on consumer spending, which is, I guess, still growing. Um, you noted that there's like been a shift from goods to more services. Um, is this a temporary? correction from lockdown from from covid we all bought porch furniture and now we don't need to buy it anymore or is this more of like a are you guys looking at this as a permanent shift in the economy people want they want out of home entertainment they want restaurants they want travel or is this just kind of a overcorrection in in terms of the trends that we've been seeing in consumer spending you know this shift 
from goods consumption to services consumption, that's something that's long been anticipated because you did have um, something short of two years of consumers or households simply not being able to consume services. So, you know, these things include travel or going out to restaurants, simple things like that. So there is a certain amount of pent-up demand that's like really driving the shift that we were seeing. So I think what's more surprising is really like how strong or how long this like pent-up demand has been holding on for. Um, so, you know, the interest rate started to increase in March of 2022. So that was well over a year ago. And it's seen incredibly rapid increases to date. Um, and what's surprising is, you know, households just seem largely, you know, unharmed by her interest rates. And that also speaks to the spending trends that you've talked about, right? Good spending are coming down, but they've never been soft during the pandemic period because for a period that was all that households could spend their money on but so it's not really surprising that we're seeing more of a flagging like you said like how many home plans do you really need or um, that sort of stuff but it is the spending on services that's been quite resilient and that's really a key surprise factor i think to a lot of economists in terms of just this tighter monetary policy framework or situation that we are basically in the middle of and how strong spending still is. Yes. And I, I, I had a follow-up question there. This is, this is unfair and I hate when people do this to me, but I dug up an article from RBC Economics of course, from 13 months ago of saying course. in July, 2022, this is it. The recession's here. It's right around the corner. But you're saying only just now are we starting to see the very first decline. So, um, it, it just takes time for people to adjust their expectations for the rate hikes to have an impact. People didn't believe it at first, like because it. I often say to people, it feels like we've been having this discussion about the recession is coming next week, next month. We've been having that for years, like ever since the rate hikes began. Um, I think that's a great question, and you know, in part, many of us have tried really hard to almost, you know, go backwards and explain what's driving this resilient trend in consumer spending that we've seen to date. And um, I think number one to point out, there are sectors or spots in the economy where we've already seen some softening or a bit more significant softening from rate hikes, and that's the housing market. What that spoke to me was essentially, you know, households on a broader sense are doing fine, actually. So, you know, the increase in interest rates due to whatever reason, you know, it could be that the delay from um, uh, just how mortgages work, because obviously if you have a five-year fixed rate mortgage, higher interest rate doesn't really impact you until your mortgage has renewal. Um, and you might see more immediate impact if you're a variable uh, mortgage holder. So it might be some of that dynamics working out. Um, it might be, again, just the excess savings. I think north of 300 billion now that we're speaking about. So it's a huge amount of savings that the households are still currently holding on to. Um, it might be both of those things. It might be other factors as well. So whatever the reason might be is really, really sort of, um, you know, supported again, just the spending trends that we've seen today. Yeah, I think it's it's been a huge surprise. I mean, as soon as the rate hikes began, we said, this is it, this is Armageddon. And it's, we're on our 10th rate hike and maybe one more to come or a few more. Now, you also had a podcast recently, this is a good jumping off point, uh, where you explored my favorite question, which is, are rate hikes even doing anything? As we're discussing, they're supposed to radically reconfigure the economy and the job market and inflation. 
um, sort of, not not really having the intended effect. So I, I think everyone has been surprised at the resilience in the job market, consumer spending, even housing. Okay, it's down. It was supposed to be down 50 or 60%. Maybe it's down 8 or 10%. Um, what's different about rate hikes this time? Like we have a model for how they're supposed to work, for how they have worked. Why isn't it having that effect? Um, so... Well, its broader impact can be probably seen from two things. Number one is like just broader aggregate demand, which we talked about a lot already. I named a few things that could potentially. So we all know like monetary policy tend to work with the like, right? Like it takes time again to really filter through to slow household and businesses spending and investment activity with usually a four quarter like. That's usually how long it takes for time monetary policy to start working. Um, but this time around, it has been, again, more than four quarters, and we're starting to finally see some first signs of weakening in the economy, and there are a lot of reasons. So on the spending end, we talk about excess savings, we talk about pent-up demand already. So these are all things that could be, you know, just working in some sense against tighter monetary policy and shielding or insulating households from the tighter, you know, monetary rates environment that we're seeing today. And also on the labor market as well is also where, you know, for the businesses, um, normally, obviously, with rates inching higher, we do expect a lot of them. It's just becoming harder for businesses as well to service their current finance um, obligations, you know, making debt payments and that sort of stuff. So uh, we should see some slowing, and which then translates to less hiring demand, which are, again, we're finally seeing right now. But it did take longer for businesses as well. And that has to do with sort of the the more structural labor shortage issue that we've been talking about for decades. Um, you know, with uh, population continuing to age, um, we are, you know, starting to see more the impact of essentially baby boomers, you know, retiring out of the labor force. And these positions are usually, you know, more senior or experienced than those that are entering into the labor force. So these are big shoes to fill in a sense. Um, so what that impact really had on businesses were that for the longest time, they really had problems with hiring. And this is not one sector. This is like businesses across different sectors. So we've seen there's a ratio of unemployment to job vacancy, and that's basically suggesting for every single sector that we're so we're talking about manufacturing, we're talking about wholesale, retail, and most pronounced in healthcare and constructions. So these are the two sectors that are facing disproportionately more acute labor shortage issues, but nonetheless, is really broad based, and you know so that's been working again against sort of the tighter monetary policy businesses in a sense don't want to let go of workers even when they anticipate their sales to not be doing so well in the coming quarters right so there's being like we we had so much issue or challenges with hiring workers we don't want to let them go so that in a way has been supporting labor market condition as well so just some of the factors that are really you know giving that push and pull um against or towards monetary policy that we've seen today yeah, lot lot to discuss there, and I definitely want to get to the demographic point as well. And and what you're saying, we've certainly heard from clients, which is okay. Yes, rates and inflation, but we have workers have received a raise during that time. Like the household, one of the reasons the household is resilient is that the job market is tight and raises have been happening, and people are making more than they were in 2019. Um, w let me stay on rate hikes for one moment. Uh, Given what you're saying, okay, rate hikes are having their effect eventually. So that's it. We don't need to raise rates anymore. Or do, or do we need to stay the course? Do we need to continue 
raising rates. Uh, we've already had 10 rate hikes with there's potentially another one next week. Um, if it's just it's taking a while, but it is having the attendant effect, then do we need to raise rates again and again and again? Or have we sort of reached the, the right point with it? Again, this is an opinion, not maybe a little less data, a little more opinion. So, But then, I mean, that's exactly the question that the Bank of Canada is pondering, right? Have we done enough? Are we there yet? Um, and I don't think, well, maybe they do, but to be honest, I don't think they have, they know fully as the same with all of us, right? At this point, we can make sort of uh, reasonable um, suggestions when it comes to, you know, just how soft the broader economic backdrop will become. And we are, again, starting to see softening in labor market. But sadly, from the Bank of Canada's perspective, what they're most concerned about at this point is still inflation and inflation trends, um, especially those that are suggested by the few core CPI index that the Bank of Canada tends to pay a lot of attention to. So these core measures, if I have to explain them in simple terms, they're essentially, um, you know, sort of calculated to get a gauge, a better, better gauge at underlying price pressure that's like basically driven by broader domestic demand. So forget about food, forget about energy, forget about mortgage interest costs. These are all things that you can name and pinpoint, right? So what about everything else collectively that's more, you know, as a sort of a, um, a sign of how broadly consumer demand is really holding up to um, and what that does to prices. So that's what the core measures are constructed for, essentially. Um, and those core measures have not been doing so great. So they've been stuck at around 35 to 4% annualized rate on a three-month annualized basis um, since October of 2022. So they've been dropping pretty rapidly before that, but since then they've been stuck. And the risk really here is the longer that they get stuck at those levels, the longer households and businesses are going to start to expect inflation rates at that level. So that's a key risk for the Bank of Canada. They can't afford to have inflation expectations become unanchored. So I think that's really in their head, uh, the question to be answering, you know, um, what's the 11th rate hike going to do on top of the previous 10, right? Um, to be honest, it's really in the near term, the impact will really be more of a signaling. You know, from the bank's perspective, they're saying, we're still willing to step in if we think there's more work to do. We are not done with the inflation fight. If price pressure continues to be more persistent, we will hike. So that's sort of the message that they want to give us. Um, so it's really their credibility that they're trying to hold on to at this point. And the more material impact from that 11th rate high will probably come a year later. We talk about the lag already, right? So that's sort of um, well, the way that we've been interpreting. Uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting how much is tied to just the expectations of we have our expectations. They need to change our expectations with their policy. Be credible. Uh, okay. And I know you write regularly about inflation and sort of not just the headline number, but picking apart, okay, food versus gas versus housing versus... But like, I think this is a question a lot of us and our clients are, which is, why is inflation so persistent? Like the story of there aren't ships coming out of Taiwan or ships are stuck abroad. Like that, that's not the story right now. I don't think it, it's not about the supply chain is messed up because of lockdowns abroad or something like that. So inflation is persistent because we think it's persistent or I, I think there's a little more to it than that, right? Like what, what exactly is, is keeping some of these things so high? Like, okay, mortgages, I think we understand what's happening there. 
a uh, little less so in these other areas. Can you elaborate on that? Yes. Yeah, so again, so it kind of goes back to those core measures that I touch on um, just now, um, which are so basically the run up of inflation or the brief history of high inflation in Canada uh, post pandemic. Uh, is really a lot of questions were thrown at us basically at the beginning of the run up of inflation. It's like, do you think this is demand driven or supply driven, right? Is it the global supply chain challenges or issues that's behind the inflation trend? Or is it like because demand is just so overwhelmingly above where they were pre-pandemic? And at the time, our answer, well, still, the answer to that question, we think is both. Um, so you do have like incredibly high demand specifically for goods um, during the two years when services weren't available to be consumed. That basically bumping against a lot of the logistics issue, you know, container getting stuck somewhere um, on sea and then other issues as well, the chip shortage, uh, to name a few, that's still in a way hindering auto production even as we speak. Um, so a lot of those issues combined and really, you know, worked up to be the high inflation that we're seeing today. And it really takes both both demand and supply to cool to for inflation to come down. And so far, we've seen a lot of progress being made on the supply side. You know, a lot of the shipping indicators and costs associated with international container shipping have been coming down closer to levels pre-pandemic. But it is a demand side. You know, again, it goes back to the surprise that we've all been talking about, just how incredibly resilient consumer spending has been and not on goods anymore. So, again, this goes back to spending on services to date. You know, it, it really is, you know, some of these like serve price prices associated with key services that are um, at time discretionary. Um, so, again, things like hotels, um, you know, accommodation when you're traveling and uh, local restaurants. So these things are predominantly supporting the the inflation trends that we're seeing today, which is also why the Fed, the U.S. Fed and the Bank of Canada, they both have a measure called Supercore, uh, which is essentially services CPI, excluding the shelter component, because like you said, the shelter component um, gets biased either way by monetary policy. Um, so excluding that, so that super core measure, you know, are not basically showing a good sign. And what that's really telling us is, you know, domestic demand is simply still too strong. Interesting. Uh, let me, the, so much discussion of, of rates. Let me shift gears a little bit to like de demographics. This is a fave topic of mine. Um, you know, there's been a lot of headlines, record high population growth in Canada, uh, which is generally favorable and you've mentioned okay aging population wave of retirement need for employees but we're also seeing some of the challenges related to that like a growing population means we need we need growing infrastructure we need healthcare and education and housing to accommodate that so where do you come down on like we're we're at a real peak in terms of of population growth is that what's the balance of that in terms of of benefits and costs and and where do you see that going um, so, yeah, we've definitely seen some pretty, well, record increase in population in 2022 uh, because of higher immigration target. And uh, while it's not only driven by higher Im immigration inflow, it's also driven by higher non-permanent residents. So that include people on their work visa and their student visa as well. Um, so that's biggest, obviously by far the biggest driver of population growth. So on the good side, I think we're all aware of like just how, you know, having um, 
immigrant inflow can really add to the economy because it adds to aggregate demand for different goods and services that's being offered. And obviously that then downstream lead to more job creation as well, uh, more hiring and more investment because you need to basically service a demand that's now bigger than they were before. So that's sort of the good side. And back to the labor shortage issues that we've been talking about as well, that's like so pronounced across different sectors. So uh, very interestingly, um, so for basically the first couple of months of 2023, we've seen record increase, record increase in the unemployment, uh, uh, sorry, in the total employment number. Um, because that's mostly driven by population growth. So what that's saying, the story that that's telling is because is basically you have this record inflow into the labor force, but they're getting absorbed extremely quickly. Um, so that really goes to speak about how um, at least partially the labor inflow driven by population has been helping in a, in a big way to solve the Canadian labor shortage issue. Um, but then, obviously, like you said, that there are constraints as well when it comes to, you know, just integrating and making sure that, um, uh, you know, they have like adequate housing. Um, so housing, obviously, when it comes to challenges with growing population is the elephant in the room. Uh, it is, well, a huge challenge. But what I like to say about that is it's not a new challenge. Um, in a way, you know, if you look at the data, it's actually very interesting. You know, the immigrants and non-permanent Im immigrants are actually more likely, much more likely to live in unsuitable homes. So these are homes that do not actually have enough bedrooms to house everyone. So and they're also more likely to rent. But regardless of that distinction, whether they're renting or they're buying, um, they nonetheless add to overall housing demand and that could drive prices up um, over the longer run. So I think that's where a lot of concerns are uh, when it comes to just like, you know, can we really house uh, the added population that's uh, expected to, to continue to be the case for the next couple of years. And the second one is also when it comes to, um, you know, just how we can really incorporate uh, them it's like sufficiently or efficiently into the workspace. Um, so we've actually put our report on underutilization of uh, immigrant skills. We measure that by, you know, how likely are they to work for a position that doesn't require the same level of training or education attainment that they are. And they're much more likely, essentially. So that speaks to um, just a lot of challenges um, when it comes to recognizing their skills. And number one, that's basically we're not recognizing their credentials when they're trained, not in Canada. So that's a huge barrier to be broken. Um, and um, it's a double-edged sword, right? Because for the immigrants, they're not earning the income that they're anticipating to. Uh, that's, you know, sort of uh, corresponding to their education attainment, be it not in Canada or not. And at the same time, we have a labor force that's a lot less productive than what it could have been if we were to utilize their skills more efficiently. So both both of these things, um, what's really, I think, important to recognize here is, you know, it's just um, the issue itself is not growing population. It's, you know, in a way that uh, the gap in labor market outcome actually stems from structural challenges. So these are challenges that have been longstanding before the population started to increase more rapidly in 2022. And they will be here even if we, you know, were to tap the brakes a little bit on the immigrant flow. So it's really more like how do we work to address this issue um, deep down to the roots instead of, you know, curbing the flow of immigrant where these uh, problems are oftentimes more exacerbated um, in.
Yeah, I, I agree. And it's it's one of those problems where when you zoom out globally, like m- many people would be happy to have this problem. When we when we look at your Japan or Italy and their problem is the population is going to shrink by 50% in yeah, the next exactly. couple of decades, a lot of them say, oh, your problem is too much growth and too many people want to live in your cities. Perhaps that's not, uh, it's still a challenge, but it's it's a challenge some countries would like to have where Exactly. It's a good problem to have. Yeah, kind of in in some ways. Now, you mentioned um, like productivity. This is it's kind of a hot topic. We hear about productivity is low. It hasn't grown. The United States has such such higher productivity. Uh, It's been flat for decades, whatever. So you you alluded to one point here, which is, okay. there's there's capacity for perhaps productivity to be higher than it is. But is this a huge issue? Is it is it you know, it's of great interest to economists to those of us in real estate or other industries, like where where does productivity fit into this? Is this a, a, a big concern we should have? Well, it has been a big concern. I think it's a common problem that's uh, actually faced by, well, comparing to the United, United States, we're not doing as good, but more broadly speaking, productivity growth in a lot of advanced economies have been slowing for decades. And there are a lot of, um, you know, p- potential explanation for that one being, you know, just slower adoption of available technology was like a common sort of reason uh, that people usually give behind slower slower productivity growth. But more specifically to Canada, you know, you usually get growth to productivity from two sources, right? Number one, from the labor input. So that goes back to the the, the point that we were talking about earlier, you know. The more efficiently you can utilize the immigrant skill, the more unlikely it is for a trained doctor to work as a Uber driver. The more pro- versus as an actual do- doctor, the more productive the labor force will be, right? And the issue is obviously more constrained, especially when we need people in healthcare and skills trade as well. So, kind of like two sectors that new immigrants are historically underrepresented in, in, in when it comes to the workforce. And then the second part of uh, where you can add some productivity is obviously through capital deepening. So that's basically through, you know, more business investment into, you know, R&D and that sort of stuff. So OECD report, interesting, I just found out about this myself when I was doing research for uh, this podcast. Uh, Canada is ranked as the most attractive country for startup founders among all OECD countries. So with high scores in all dimensions, so that includes regulatory framework for starting and closing a business, um, access access to capital, market conditions, reach for international trade. So we're like obviously very trade reliant and that's in a way opportunity as well. So what that's saying is we're pretty good at starting businesses, but apparently we're not very good at growing them. So Canada does have a much smaller size when it comes to the average size of businesses. So we have a much larger proportion of small businesses, SMEs in Canada. So that's been linked to, you know, just the stagnating sort of growth and productivity that we've seen over the past decade, partially because smaller businesses are less capital intensive to begin with. And what that does is basically you know, it's because capital is in a way more expensive to these smaller businesses. So they're more labor heavy. And then that then creates bigger financial constraints and higher fixed costs when it comes to implementing things that are efficiency enhancing, including, you know, ICTs or what they're called info and communication, uh, information and communication technologies and uh, labor training and investing in R&D again. So all these activities 
um, tend to, you know, just be more pronounced and in, in, were more accessible, I would say, in a way to larger businesses as opposed to uh, SMEs. So that in a way were, um, have been part of the reason a lot of people explain why there's a productivity gap between U.S. and Canada. Interesting. Great, great discussion. Um, just a couple more questions. So I, I feel like we just have to touch on this and everything uh, the, the cost of housing. Yes. I mean, we've kind of talked around that. We've talked about rates. We've talked about population growth. We've talked about migration. Um, you know, in, housing costs are very high. Yes. They, it, people can't afford to own a home. Like, what, does this keep you up at night? Like, do what, what needs to be done to ease this other than let's cut rates back to zero? Like, leaving that off the table, housing is, it's a benefit for many people, the, what's happened, but it's it's a problem sort of big picture wise for the economy if people can't afford to live here if all of their money is spent on rent like what needs to happen on the housing to kind of restore balance yes yeah, so that's the the question that policymakers are trying to solve these days how to solve the housing crisis um and a lot of talking points have long been discussed about like when it comes to removing barriers to building new building activities number one to let's say, to allow for permit issuance to come through a lot faster. Again, like OECD actually ranked Canada as the 34th among 35 OECD countries when it comes to obtaining a permit for new general construction project. Um, so we actually, the U.S., by comparison, ranks number three or 168 days faster than Canada to obtain a permit. So that, in a way, just speaks to the amount of barriers when it comes to, you know, just getting some of the new construction and permits uh, online, not even to start building, but just putting them into the pipeline. So um, obviously that's one thing to address. Um, the other thing is also, you know, how do we fit the demand that's incoming uh, a bit better in terms of housing? So again, we kind of know that newcomers or um, Im immigrants to Canada tend to rent um, among the first years when they come rather than, all right, like buying houses and owning houses. So, you know, including we're building more suitable rental options, especially for families. So we do see a lot of rental units, obviously downtown, right? Like in high density areas, but, you know, so it is comes down to addressing the m missing middle issue more so, you know, building available rental units in neighborhoods close to schools and other amenities that could be um, lower on density, um, so where, you know, demand in that sort of space, uh, which is essentially renter households living in single and semi-detached homes have actually boomed over the past 10 years. So they increased by 33%. So the demand is there, right? Obviously, as to uh, demand for housings and many other forms, but especially as more millennials probably growing to the age of, uh, you know, forming families and starting to look at some of the options if they can just simply can't afford to buy. So I think it's, you know, addressing obviously the, the uh, you know, some of the barriers, but at the same time, adding to the supply pool in a more strategic way, obviously is is the the sort of the key here when it comes to addressing the housing, but that's just my two cents and, uh, you know, not a housing specialist and, but it is an issue that deeply concerns me personally because I just can't, can't see the prospect of me being a homeowner like ever. Um, but hopefully that changes and, uh, through some of these ways that, uh, you know, potentially, you know, the government and, uh, on all different level can combine and work to address some of these issues too. I, I think we're all hoping for that. Um, <laughs> let, let me throw you one last question, which is like, what's one indicator you're watching that we haven't discussed? Like, 
car sales, tech jobs, export volumes. Like we've we've talked about we've talked about rates and we've talked about inflation and housing and demographics. Like what's something that you as an economist have your eye on that that we might not be aware of? Um, so it was actually so the immediate answer that came to my mind uh, is this uh, job switching rate that's published by StatCan. It's not publicly available. It was actually the Globe did an article on it yesterday, which is why I remember it today. Um, very short memory span. Um, but then basically what it measures. So I think that the key question that we are pondering, given the weakening in labor market data that we've seen today, is like, is this a head fake, right? Like, is this just volatility? Are things actually slowing down more significantly? Is this like preluding a broader slowdown in hiring demand? Or is this just like three months of slowdown and we see like the unemployment rate bounce right down? Or go, go back right down? So, and then in a way, you know, that job switching rate, which is has been declining quite drastically. So it's basically speaking to the fact that the unemployment rate could increase, well, Sorry, let me back up a little bit. The unemployment rate could increase from two factors, right? Number one, people are actually losing jobs. Number two, you have more people entering the labor force that can't find jobs. And those are very different prospects, right? So we know the second factor is true because we have a record surge of population um, adding to the labor force. So if it's just taking them a bit longer to find jobs, that's not super concerning. But if people are outrising layoffs, that speaks more to the weakening trend. I mean, like either way, labor demand is slowing, but it's just like, you know, is it is it something that's persistent that we can expect to to foreshadow probably a mild recession that uh, we are still anticipating in the Canadian economy? And again, the job switching rate that's been coming way down just in a way because you would only switch job if you're really confident in the economy, let's say. And when there are a lot of opportunities flowing around, so that sort of speaks to the liquidity of hiring as well, where labor free flowing, which tends to freeze up when things are, you know, going downhill. Um, so just something that's uh, popping into my head. But then again, it's not published on StackCan's website. So uh, if uh, listeners are interested, you can email StackCan and they'll give it to you because I've done that before. Um, so yeah, that's one of the indicators that, uh, you know, just like more focus on the sort of pressing uh, current issues in this current economic cycle that I'm watching. And that's all the time we have for this episode of Collier's Talks. A very special thank you to our guest, Claire Fon from RBC Economics. It's been a pleasure discussing these topics around the Canadian economy. And thank you to our audience who joined us from wherever you access your podcasts, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks for listening to Collier's Talks podcast. To learn more about Collier's Canada, our experts, and our solutions, visit colliercanada.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.